you know, uh, this fall, if you didn't know this, our pastor is away. We do have a pastor. He's just a, he's just away. <laughs> he, he's just away for a few months. And if you're new, you might be wondering, well, who is the pastor of this church? Um, but he'll be back in November. But we're so blessed uh, to have several people uh, with us speaking, but especially Warren Samuel. So let's welcome Warren again this morning. Thank you. My favorite month of the year is truly October. Uh, yesterday, I got up, I, I walk an hour and a half every morning and uh, did some yard work yesterday and uh, told my wife, I said, I, I just, I've got to, I want to watch football today. That's, so I was going back and forth with um, Texas OU. Then I was watching the uh, A&M Alabama game and something that is very rarely seen on television in October, the Texas Rangers were playing. So <laughs> And it was a phenomenal game, but anyway, that's not the point of today. But the point is, my heart was super heavy yesterday as I thought about the people in Israel. And I thought it would be very appropriate for us this morning to lift up the nation of Israel. Uh, some who are planning funerals this week, uh, some have relatives that are kidnapped, have no idea right now what's being done to them. Just put yourself in, in their shoes. I'm also praying that our country does the right thing in supporting Israel during this time. So let's pray for those in leadership in our country that they will do the right thing, that Israel knows that she has a friend in the U.S. Again, I'm not a political guy, not trying to be political. I don't think this is politics. And I, I just want to take a moment and pray for them. Can we do that? Father, I uh, thank you for the day. I'm also thankful that our country is not being hit by rockets and invasion. It is only your grace, your power, your spirit that stops that from happening today. God, we're dependent upon you. The only hope for our country is you. Man is not the answer to our country's problems. You are the only answer, and we acknowledge that this morning. And we pray for our friends in Israel who are going through a very horrific time. And God, I want to ask, first of all, that you might use something that we cannot glory in to bring glory to yourself, that there might be a spiritual awakening in Israel, that you would open eyes to who Jesus is, and that you would draw massive people, numbers of people to yourself, and that truly, there would be a revival that would break out and that you might use something like this to open their eyes. I pray for our country, for its leaders, that we will do the right thing, oh God, as a nation and that we would support them and encourage them during this horrific time. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I know that when I tell you this, some of you are going to think this is the dumbest thing you've ever heard uh, you're certainly, some of you are going to say, it's the most boring thing I've ever heard. But this summer, I took a few weeks to study the church in Germany in the early 1930s. Now, I know you're thinking, you have no life. And I, I have a life, but I love history. And in particular, I love church history. And so I began to study the church uh, during that period of time, right before Hitler became chancellor of Germany. 
And what I found amazing was that about 80% of the churches in Germany at that time remained silent to the atrocities of Hitler and the Nazi regime, about 80%. There were a few men and women who spoke out, one in five churches that spoke out. But for the most part, the church in Germany in the early 30s was absolutely silent. And what is sad to me is that some of those that spoke out against these horrible atrocities, they were mocked, they were labeled extremists, people tried to cancel them from their culture. Sound familiar? This very thing is happening in our nation today. When people stand up for what is true, society attempts to cancel us. Now, cancel culture may be a new word, but it's not a new idea. It existed in Germany in the 30s. It existed first century when Jesus lived, for the scribes and Pharisees attempted to cancel him out of their culture. It's been around for a long time. But what saddened me the most in this study even though I found it fascinating, was that there were great similarities, ladies and gentlemen, between the churches, the majority of the churches in 1930 and a great number of churches in America in 2023. So many churches in our country have stopped proclaiming truth They have bowed to the whims of society. They do not want to be seen as intolerant. Their mouths have become closed to things that we should speak in love, of course. The church today, many ways, is mirroring the 80% club in Germany in the 1930s. If I were to ask you who was responsible for the six million Jews and Christians that died in Germany in the early 30s, most of it would attribute it to Hitler. And certainly, he was the biggest problem. But if you study church history, in particular, this church history, you will see that the church's silence was a contributing factor to what was going on in Germany in the early 30s. Now, I've said to you many times. We, we joined this church about three years ago. We love this church. I love our pastor. I love our staff. We've got an incredible group of men and women who lead us. A church faithful to its Jerusalem, its Judea, its Samaria. The Taylors are representation of us reaching people in the uttermost parts of the earth. But folks, I want you to understand, I share this with you as a warning. It doesn't take long for a church to decide to lose its voice and to stop speaking truth and stop confronting evil. And just like the silent churches in Germany in 1930, it will have a devastating effect on this country if we go down the same road. And it's very, very important for us as a church. I look at 
Saul, who was one day God's anointed, and the next day he's consulting witches and throwing spears. We've got to keep on focus as a church. If we're going to be what God created us to be. Eric Metaxas said, some have described the church as simply a movement or an institution. He said, certainly elements of this are true, but it's not all that God called the church to be. The real question is, can a church be a church or call itself a church and not be a church? I I want you to think about that. Can a church call itself a church and not be a church? What do you think the answer is? Yes. I was listening to a podcast this week by Alistair Begg. And Alistair said, if I were to ask many churches in this country, how you doing? They'd say, well, we're doing well. He said, the problem is many of them don't even know what they're doing. Well, there will be no question as to what the church is to do. By the time we're finished today, it's only a matter of whether we'll be obedient to what God has called us to be. Because the church is to live as a community of faith in all aspects of their lives so that society around them and the world is blessed and encouraged because of them. Look, folks, we do not want to use this church, or maybe what I should, maybe a better way to say it is this. We do not want to see our community as the means to build this church, but rather this church as the means to build our community. Do you understand that? We exist as a people to reach people. When the gospel came to you, you've heard me say this before, it was on its way to someone else. It's to think about those who are not yet here. And so the German church in 1930s, in the early 30s, it stopped its responsibilities. And the German nation as a whole paid a very, very dear price. And we will pay the very same price if we don't learn from history. If we shut up, we stop worrying about being offensive, we stop proclaiming truth because of what people will label us, our country will head down the same path. In fact, I believe a silent church has a devastating effect on its, on its country. So I want to spend, spend some time this morning dealing with the subject, how do we increase our influence in a postmodern culture? Because certainly that's where we are today. If you have your Bibles, you should have turned with me over to the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. Let me just say by way of background that the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day also were very passionate about their influence. But the problem is their definition of influence was much different than God's definition of influence. For most of the Jewish leaders, they sought influence for the purpose of power. They sought influence for the purpose of control. They saw influence as a way to line our pocketbooks. It's a very different definition than God ever designed for his bride. He designed his bride to influence culture. He did not create his bride to control its people. I, was, I read an article this week from a man who's left the church, says he's left the faith. I have no idea. I can't judge his heart. 
He just said, I want no more of it. And when they asked him why, he said this. He said, the church only exists to control people and to take their money. Now, there may be someone in this room that feels that very same way. You're here today because someone brought you here, and you say, well, all they want to do is control you, and they want your money. Well, I'm not telling you that that doesn't exist in some churches. It does not exist here. It doesn't. The purpose of influence is never for the purpose of control. That is a perversion of what God created the church to be, though I know in some places it does exist. The church was given by God to his people as an institution for the display, not of man's glory, not of man's power, but of God's. And so would you stand with me this morning, and we're going to read together verses 13 through 16. So in honor of his word, would you stand and just simply read along silently as I read aloud. Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how is it made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of man. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Father, please let your words fall upon fertile ears. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So John, Arthur, John MacArthur makes a statement that Jesus begins this discourse with a presupposition. A presupposition is something that I say and I take for granted you understand what I mean. If I were to come through the doors right over here and I walked in and said, hey, I hope everybody brought their umbrellas today. What am I presupposing that you know? Thank you, I, you guys are so sharp, yes that it's raining outside, right? I didn't tell you it's raining, but I presuppose that you knew it was raining based on the fact I said, I hope you brought your umbrellas. Jesus in this text does not tell us that the world is dark, but he presupposes we understand that by the fact he calls us light. He doesn't say in the text that the world is decaying, but he presupposes that we understand that based on the fact he calls us salt. So he begins here with a presupposition. Then immediately he goes into his plan. There is no other plan. Let's look at it. Jesus said in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. You, you see there the definite article, the, in front of salt. Then he says, you are the, definite article again, light of the world. The only group of people on the face of the earth with the potential to be salt and light in a dark and decaying culture are God's children. The world cannot be salt and light. They cannot. They do not have the capacity. The only individuals on the face of the earth with that capacity are God's children. Now you understand, we're not, not everyone in the world is God's children. You do understand that. We were all created in the image of God, but Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, your father's the devil. 
So understand that only those of us who know Christ, who've been born again, truly understand what it means to be salt and to be light. Now, since this follows the Beatitudes, you might think in reading the Beatitudes that what Jesus is calling for is for the church, for his children, to be separate. Separatism always is in reference to being different, not being distant. This is very important for you to understand. To be different means exactly what it says. I should look different than the culture that I live in. My life should look very different. It never refers to being distant from culture. I, I see Christians that say, well, I'm going to grab my guns and my gold, and I'm going to head for the hills, and, or I'm going to move to a monastery. I'm going to get away. That was never the plan of God for effecting change on a culture. It's okay to visit the monastery. It's okay to visit the mountains. It's okay to get away for a period of time for the purpose of God regenerating regenerating our heart, of bringing revival in our life to make us better as salt and light in the world that we live in today. And yet, a lot of people don't understand that. I believe the church has two responsibilities within this plan. One is to the redeemed, those who know the Lord. One is to the unredeemed, those who do not. And the focus of the ministry of the church is different based on the group. In other words, to one group, it's a ministry of motivation. To the other, it is a ministry of reconciliation. To believers, this church, its leadership exists to encourage and to equip the body of Christ for the work of the ministry. Sam once asked me a question. We were having lunch one day, and he said, hey, what do you expect out of me as a pastor? I said, really, not much. I, 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 that sounded terrible. That's not really what I'm, I'm, not that my bar for him is set low, but this is what I meant by that. I said, Sam, really, the only thing I expect from my pastor is that every day he gets up and seeks the face of God, spends time preparing his heart and a message to equip the saints on Sunday morning. When I'm in the hospital, I don't expect you to come see me. When, I, when there's a function, I don't expect you to be there. I said, all I expect is you love your family more than you love yourself. You love your God. You pray. You prepare for Sunday. That's his primary role, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and to encourage us. Folks, we get so wrapped up in our own little worlds. I, I met a guy when I was in my early 20s. He was in his late 80s, and he was nearing the end of his pastorate, of course, and I asked him, I said, what do you know now that you wish you'd have known when you started ministry 60-something years ago? He said, I wish I'd have understood how discouraged people are. He said, I believe 70% of my congregation is discouraged at any given time. He said, every time I write a note, make a phone call, he said, I, I believe there's a 70% chance. There should never be a Sunday that we don't look for somebody in this church to encourage. I mean that. We get so busy in what we're doing that we come in here, we do our thing, and we go home, and we don't understand that that person that's sitting next to us may be going through a crisis, and a kind word 
a gracious word changes their life. And so the ministry to the believers is encouragement equipping, but to the unbelievers, it's reconciliation. Now, God is the one that reconciles. We don't do the reconciliation. But you do understand God has given this church a ministry of reconciliation, calling the world in its need to be reconciled to God. Will they all be reconciled to God? No. But that does not excuse us from helping the world to understand its need to be reconciled to God. And so we have that responsibility. But here's something that's interesting, and I think it really relates to the church. I didn't see it till this week. But in verse 13, he begins verse 13 with the word you. Do you see that? And then in verse 14, he begins that verse with the word you. If I were to say to Justin, hey, you, how many of you think I'm talking to anybody other than Justin? Look, don't just look at me. I just need to see some sort of head movement that you're out there. I'm going to ask the question again. It's very simple. If I look at Justin and I say, hey, you, am I talking to everyone in the room? Okay, good. Shake your heads like this. That's the correct head direction. No, I'm talking to him. But what's interesting is that the word you in 13 and 14 is in the plural. Jesus is talking about the power of community. He's talking about the church. The power of us being together. Well, can I be a Christian and not go there? Yes, but you need us just like we need you. There's something you can bring to the table that no one else can. We need that, and you need that. So understand he's talking about plurality. One candle does not produce the same light as a spotlight. One grain of salt on a New York strip does not have the same effect as multiple grains of salt on a New York strip. But here's the key, and it's very important we catch this. You and I cannot be salt and light without the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross. We can't. When he calls us salt and light, he's not telling us this is something you should work for. He's giving those of us who know him in a personal way your status that's been bestowed upon you by him. Do you see that? The focus here is on being, not on doing. Now, as a man, I'm going to be very transparent. I wish, I wish that it was about working for it. And I think the idea of working for something appeals to men more than surrender. Most men in this room hate the word surrender. We hate it. But the ways of God are not the ways of man. The thoughts of God are not the thoughts of man. The Christian life begins at a point of surrender. And I cannot be what God wants me to be. And I certainly can't be salt. And I cannot be light unless I allow him to be that in my life. Do you remember when Adam and Eve sinned what they did? First thing they did, they put some fig leaves around to cover them up. First pair of fruit of the looms right there. Okay? And so they put on this pair of of fruit of the looms and they walked around the garden. Do you realize that it was their pathetic attempt to cover up their sin? It was humanity's first attempt to become righteous by working for it. 
So what did God do? God did two things. In Genesis 3, he first of all pronounced judgment on them, and then second of all, and oh God, thank you for this. In Genesis chapter 3, God, don't miss this, God provided the garments, the garments of skin that would cover Adam and Eve. Ladies and gentlemen, don't miss this. Blood had to be shed for Adam and Eve to be made right with God. There was no right standing with God without the shedding of blood. You have to understand that. That's why we have to go back to the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross if you and I are to influence our culture in the way God intended for it. But then he says, or gives us, in verse 13, the problem. There's a problem. There's a big problem. Look at it. But he says, if salt has become tasteless, underline that little word, how can it be made salty again? Now, there's a scientific, scientifically impossible for salt to become tasteless. So what is Jesus saying? Well, the word that he uses here, I think a better translation that we can understand is the word defiled. So let's, let's insert the word defiled. But if the salt has become defiled, it is now useless. Sherry and I, a number of years ago, had a chance to go to Israel. We spent a half a day at the, at the Dead Sea. I was going to swim in the Dead Sea until I put my hand in the Dead Sea, and I went, nah, I'm good. Just had no desire. It is the saltiest body of water, but other minerals, gyps and other minerals, have come into the, this body of water, and it basically is worthless. Very little redeeming value of the Dead Sea, even though it's salty. Sin defiles me. Sin hinders me from reflecting the beauty of Christ as I should. The problem, ladies and gentlemen, is not the message. It is the messenger. One of my dear friends, he's a young pastor here in the area. I, was, I took him to lunch this week just to check on him, which I do periodically, he said, I want to show you something. He began to show me five or six different clips of churches here in the country and what they did to try to attract people. I thought I would show some of the clips today, but I want you to understand this. Many of you would have gotten up and walked out if you'd seen what I saw. And some of them were Baptist churches. One in particular caught my eye. They walked into the church there's a big, huge screen with Barbie's likeness. And they said, the focus of today's message is Barbie. I am not kidding. God is my witness. This year, right after the film came out, I thought to myself, did I miss something? I must have missed the verse that said, if Barbie is lifted up, I will draw men into myself. You know why so many churches are doing things like that? Because they don't believe the message is sufficient anymore. It has to be the gospel plus. That's like saying it has to be Jesus plus. Because we want to be palatable. We want to try to reach these seekers. 
Well, there's a difference between being a seeker-sensitive church, which our church is, and I love that, which means we're sensitive to people who walk in the door who don't know the Lord. We want them to feel loved. We want them to be encouraged. We want to try to point them to the gospel. But there is a seeker-centered church. There's a seeker-sensitive church. I believe ours is sensitive. But the seeker-centered church says, no, we're putting all the eggs in that basket. That's what we're all about, reaching the seeker. Do you understand? That's a segment of people the Bible said do not exist. The Bible says no man seeks God. Nobody is seeking God until the Spirit of God is drawing them to the Father. Does you understand that? To the lost person that God is not dealing with, the gospel is death. But to those of us who know him, the gospel is life. It's life. It's life. And so the problem in this text, folks, is not, it's not the message, it's the messenger. Tim Shepard in the mid-70s sang a song, part of it goes like this. I'm not singing it, but he's, here are the words. Here's what he said. Superman I thought I was, so I tried to be, until one day I realized the kryptonite was me. What's going to keep the church from reaching its community is not the message, it potentially is the messenger. And then he gives us the purpose, and I'm finished, in verse, six, in verse 16. The purpose of all of this, he said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good, the word here is kalos, good works, and glorify your Father. The word kalos does not refer to the quality of work or the quantity of work. Don't miss this. It refers to the attractiveness of the work, okay? If it were on the quality, maybe I could do that, or it was on the quantity, maybe I could do that, but I, in and of myself, have nothing that would attract a lost world to Jesus. It is the light of Jesus shining through my life that potentially allows me to speak to those about the hope that I have in him. You understand that? So it goes back again, I can't do this. There's nothing attractive about Warren Samuels at all. I'm fully aware of that. If there's anything attractive, it is because of what Christ has done in my life. And oh, hey, spoiler alert, it's the same way with you. Any beauty attractiveness in you comes from him. And it is all about his glory. That is the reason he has created us as salt and light for the glory of his name. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you that it is as relevant in 2013 as it was in the first century. And we are grateful for that. God, we cannot be. The Christian life is not just hard. It is impossible to live apart from surrender to you. I pray you'd remind us of that today. And I pray that you'd be glorified in all that we say and do. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today for Worship Online. If you're in our area, we want to invite you to come to physically connect to your local church. We would love to help you to live and love like Jesus alongside of others who are doing the same. If you're from outside of our area, can I challenge you to find a local church in your area that's going to preach the Bible and exalt Jesus? 
Smash the like button, subscribe, share with friends, and turn on notifications if you'd like to stay up to date with us. And thanks again for joining us.